All right, welcome to another episode of Peak Health Unlocked. I am one of your hosts, Mark Champagne, alongside Dr. Rhett Langley and Dr. Philip Gallegos. We interview experts discussing the latest science, technology, and wellness practices to help unlock your peak health. Make sure to stick around at the end of the episode where we have a deep dive and talk about the most interesting topics from the interview. And this podcast would not be possible without the support of Thrive Performance and Regenerative Medicine, a team prepared to go all in with you to craft your personalized peak health plan. Visit the link in the show notes for a range of services. Thanks for being here and have a thriving day. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Craig Conover, who is the founder of Conover Wellness and has been practicing performance medicine for over 18 years. Not satisfied with the disease-based model of modern medicine, Dr. Conover seeks to help his clients optimize their health and performance through time-tested, nutrient, and science-driven protocols that are the cutting edge of medicine. But what does longevity mean to you? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think of it a little bit differently than probably, you know, the. I think the biohacking community has has this concept of longevity about extending life, right, in terms of age. So, yeah. you know, we have this idea that we can live to 100, 120, 130. I think of it more about extending the quality of life while you live because – I think if you talk to most people, they're way more interested in that aspect, you know, having a high quality, high performing um, daily existence is more important than just adding days to the calendar. And so, you know, whatever we can do to to bring about more quality to one's life, um, I think is a much more one. It's a I think it's a better goal. But two, I think it's it's more of an of an achievable goal. So that's how I think about it. Yeah, it's uh, really the way we had thought about it ourselves. And um, so what are the, for our listeners, what are the, some of the, your wealth of knowledge and a lot of the things that you employ to increase the quality of your patients' lives? Uh, we'd like to hear about that. So what is kind of the, the one thing that you're most interested in? I think I know the answer to this, but I want to see what uh, you, you say on this. What is the one thing that you like to employ the most uh, to improve patient lives? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously you, you think I'm going to say about NAD, and I think that's a huge part of it. Um, I think of, you know, for, for the listeners, NAD is this B3 vitamin derivative that's certainly gaining a lot of attention. It's the, the stuffs, uh, so you will, that our mitochondria uses to make ATP energy. And so we know that as we get older, um, as we stress ourselves out, our ability to recycle and make NAD declines, and then that decline in NAD leads to, you know, bad things happening, not only aging, but, you know, your risk of cancer, heart disease, neurodegenerative diseases, um, they all seem to correlate with a decline in NAD levels. And so I, I do think foundationally, you know, making NAD more uh, abundant and more accessible to people in their daily, weekly, monthly life is super, super critical. And I think, you know, the conversations I have with people is that anyone who's interested in optimizing their health and performance needs to consider NAD. And and I, so I, I do think it's foundational. Um, and I think it's a huge safety net. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about other agents that people use for longevity, like metformin and some other tools. But to me, uh, you know, and we can talk about nutrition, intermittent fasting and fitness. And, you know, I think about it in terms of there's many dials you know, that you can kind of tune in um, for yourself. But I, I think if you nailed me down to one, yeah, I would agree. NAD therapy and I'm um, doing that in various forms, which we can dive into. I, I think that's what I would hang my hat on as the way to go. So what are the, the forms of NAD for our listeners and, and ways that they can take NAD or get it administered? Yeah. So we like to use intravenous NAD and, um, some of that is because, you know, just based on the notion that when we use a, an agent intravenously, the bioavailability or the absorption is going to be its highest. And so whether you look at antibiotics or chemotherapy, you know, other vitamins, um, when we use agents intravenously, we can get the, the highest or the most out of them. So if we, if we take intravenously and we say that the bioavailability is as close to 100%, and then we take oral, 
oral, um, an oral agent just on average is going to be closer to 20%. Um, so with NAD, you know, I don't, I don't think intravenous is the most popular. Um, although I think it's the gold standard, what's most popular are these oral NAD precursors. These two molecules stand out. One is NR and one is, excuse me, NMN. Um, but those are both oral. So the bioavailability again is much, much less. And while they do, you know, there's research studies that show that taking these oral precursors can increase your NAD levels. It's very weak compared to using intravenous NAD. So to me, intravenous NAD is at the top. And then if we go down from there, we can look at um, something like subcutaneous NAD as an option for people who don't have access to IV. We can talk about sublingual. Um, I think about subcutaneous NAD is about 80%. Um, absorption, sublingual, again, probably 70%. We can talk about intranasal NAD, um, which is just a different um, vehicle. Um, And then you get into even topical. I think for NAD, topical is not as high, probably closer to 30, 40%. And then again, these oral NAD precursors. So I think a lot of the work that's going to be done, you know, going forward is trying to figure out how to use these different molecules and how to use them in a way that allows the majority of people to access them because right now due to one cost and then just the feasibility of receiving an IV, it's, it's not always feasible for people to get intravenous NAD. Although I, I, you know, that's the gold standard. That's kind of what we push here. I know that's what you guys are going to be talking about with your clients. Um, But I think there's ways to do it where we can, provide intravenous NAD and then back that up with other vehicles so that, you know, you keep people touching this, these different molecules in a really meaningful way. Is it, is it just a comfort thing in terms of um, people being more interested in the oral delivery, just given so many people are used to taking medication like that, or, or are there other factors there? I'm just curious to see, you know, even, even as our patients come in, like how to have that conversation, right? If, if IV is the best, best route. I think it's mostly, this is how we've trained people um, and not to be cynical, but you know, you look at the majority of people, right? If we take our society and we look and we say, and we know this is a fact that the greater than 50% of Americans are on more than one pharmaceutical. So if we know that we've trained our society that we've equated in, in, I think in a wrongful way that health equals medicine, right? And so in that regard, in that paradigm, it's very easy for people to just take pill. They don't have to think about it. And for the most part, they don't even feel it, right? They take their, you know, cholesterol lowering medicine, their antidepressant, blood pressure medicine, whatever it is, they're so used to the the model is if I want to be healthy, I go to the doctor and the doctor says I have these diagnoses and then he gives me pills and I take the pills and then he refills the pills and then he does lab work to say that the pills are working or whatnot. If they're not working, they add more pills. So that that model is very ingrained in people how they you know how they approach their health. I think that the model is super flawed because that model doesn't it, it, it addresses the disease aspect that we want to cover, but certainly doesn't address the wellness. Sure. So when people come in and they say, you know, how do I be healthy? you know, the vast majority are thinking I have to take a pill. And then if you start having a conversation about, well, this pill is probably not going to get you to where you want to go. They do, they do struggle at first to understand that because you're, you're trying to undo, you know, a lot of what they've been told and kind of dictated to. Um, And so then having that conversation, which I have with my patients about, just like we just started talking about, the gold standards IV, right? Like if you want to get something into your system to be the most available, the best absorbed, it's intravenously. And so once you can have, you know, people understand that, then they're going to be more open to, okay, that seems to make sense. So then how do we do that? And that's where we then talk about, you know, okay, for NAD, we want to do a loading dose. And then on average, for most people, a maintenance dose of once a month is about right. And again, it's not perfect. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, a lot to be learned. But for most people doing one IV a month, that's very doable. You know, you're talking about two hours of their two hours out of the month. You know what I mean? So um, there is some education. Um, you're undoing, we're undoing a lot of the work that's been done for decades, ingraining in people that the way to be healthy is taking a pill. And, and part of that conversation that I have with patients is, 
you know, most patients are not really present, right? We, we, we could go down this rabbit hole of why people aren't healthy. Well, a lot of it is they're not present in their life, right? They sure. don't know what they're doing. They don't pay attention to kind of being empowered and being in charge of the decisions they make. They feel like in many ways life happens to them. And we want to change that, right? We want to change that dynamic so that people can be empowered and say, you know, what do I want to achieve out of life? I really have to go after. And when they can make that switch, then anything is possible. Love it. Rhett, anything you want to? Yeah, I was going to say to speak to that, it looks, you know, you spent a lot of time cultivating protocols for NAD. And obviously that's where you've helped us amongst many other things, but you helped us cultivate those protocols in our practice is there, without opening Pandora's box, is there anything you're excited about for the future of NAD or anything that you're um, that really comes to mind that you're working on right now? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like, <clears throat> I spoke to um, the president of a super well-known supplement company yesterday who reached out to me and said, hey, you know, they're, they're working with the molecule NR. And we had the same conversation, you know, and I said, he said, what, 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 do, you, what do you like about and are not like about it. And I said, well, I'm just biased because, you know, we've seen just transformational success using intravenous NAD and, and it really does separate, right? We're not just talking about improving one's quality of life. We're talking about it's, it's transformational, which is a very different entity. And I said, I'm biased because we've, you know, we've overseen likely more NAD treatments than anywhere else in the country. So we really have built up this, very strong database of how NAD can do just what I said, transform someone's life in a, in a very meaningful way. And he said, yeah, but you have access to it. He said, what if you don't have access to it? Isn't something like the molecule NR good? And I said, yeah, it's good. It's just, I don't think it compares. So, but I did, but I did tell him, which leads me into answer your question that I, I think some of the future is figuring out ways to use all three of these molecules in combination, NR, NMN, NAD in ways that, you know, target certain goals. So for example, we know that um, NMN seems to help the nervous system, whereas NR seems to help the musculature. Um, those are two characteristics or generalities, but that's what the data seems to support. So if we can be more specific, for example, in someone wants to have more cognitive, you know, success, maybe combining NAD with NMN in certain ways, if someone wants to be better in the athletic arena, maybe combining NR with NAD. And so being, you know, kind of toning up those different protocols for different goals, goals, meaning, you know, is it performance? Is it cognitive? Is it longevity? And then combining that with other modalities to really, you know, we haven't touched upon kind of this, you know, helping our clear old cells from the system, replacing them with new cells like stem cells and how to literally rejuvenate someone um, from the inside out. It does, it's not going to be just about those molecules, right? Those are going to be a part of it and those will probably be the workhorse, but it's combining those molecules with things like stem cells, um, those other tools that, like I said, help clear out old cells. And, and I think for a lot of it, my sense is in the next three to five years, a lot of it's going to be about mental performance. I think that's what people are honed in on is not just the physical, but being able to be cognitively present, right? Being able to be mentally acute, helping with memory, and then really helping people with PTSD, anxiety, kind of, you know, reshape their environment and their experience to move from a kind of negative traumatic place to a really positive healing place. I know you're a big fan of the uh, nasal sprays. Do the uh, nasal sprays of either NAD or if there's one of NMN or NR that are created yet, do those have a different effect on you? Do they do they work more for cognitive function? Do they have a direct pathway to the brain and act differently than an IV form? Can you touch on that for our listeners? Yeah, I do. I do think, you know, we, we created an NAD CBD nasal spray for, for that purpose, to get NAD into the nervous system. And we we have some assumptions, for example, like, um, well, to give a little historical perspective, I mean, NAD grew up in the addiction world, and NAD is still used by a lot of clinics to help get people off of, you know, illicit drugs, alcohol. And NAD has this 
kind of Superman way of turning off cravings and probably more so than maybe any other molecule or substance on the planet. And so in that regard, we also know that not, not, you know, we obviously have an opioid addiction crisis in this country, but, but also we, we have an attention deficit crisis, I think, right? Like we've trained people to think that multitasking is a, is a, is the way to go. And that's, that's a lie. I mean, no one, no one can multitask. I mean, people say they can, and they kind of pat themselves on the back to be able to do more than one thing at a time, but no one can do that well. And so monotasking, I think is, is a much better approach. And I think in that regard, if you look at, you know, attention deficit as a spectrum that reflects what's going on in the nervous system, using a nasal spray is a great way to target that. And, and so we have some sense or maybe a big sense that, um, both addiction and attention deficit result from low NAD levels in the brain. And so using a nasal spray is a great way to address both of those things. Yeah, was, my, my wife would say I also have trouble monotasking, especially when it comes to coping and cycling out. So there you go. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I, I have the spray on my counter right now. I, I might have to take a break. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you, you've selected monotasking probably. So, Dr. K, we've talked about the different delivery methods. So how is it that NAD or these NAD precursors actually extend life? You were talking a little bit about clearing out senescent cells um, and rejuvenating the body. But can you touch on a little bit, like, how is it that employing NAD as part of a a patient's regimen is going to improve their longevity? Yeah. So, I mean, the the short history is, is I think, some probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with the notion of caloric restriction, right? So they used, this is probably going back probably 20 years where they found that, you know, feeding yeast, a a caloric restricted diet led to the yeast living longer. And from there they found that um, if they use the nutrient resveratrol, that that resveratrol in these yeasts, so lower organisms, less than humans, um, were also achieved some longevity, increasing lifespan. Now, it's hard to translate from that kind of an organism to a human, right? And, and it may be that at the end of the day, even with intermittent fasting and caloric restriction, we're only able to extend life by several months. Like I tell this to my patients, not to get off too far off this tangent, but you know, people are saying, oh, caloric restriction leads to a longer life there's zero data, long-term data that support that like zero. So it's, it's one of those things people have to keep in mind, like it makes sense. And if it works for you, then great. But there's way too many variables being human to say that you're going to extend your lifespan by just restricting calories. But however, this is where NAD comes into play. So resveratrol is found to, to activate the same genes in the yeast that restricting calories do. So resveratrol was termed a, you know, caloric restrictive mimetic, right? It, it mimicked the effect of caloric restriction. Well, then they found that that resveratrol, as well as caloric restriction, that that process was turned on by a set of enzymes. At the time, there was just one called the sirtuin enzymes. There's sirtuin one or SIRT1. Um, and then they found that that SIRT1 was an NAD-dependent enzyme, meaning you need NAD for that enzyme to work to then extend lifespan. So that's how NAD became somewhat popular um, through the caloric restriction, resveratrol, and then sirtuin gene or enzyme leading to, you know, needing NAD to make that process work, if that makes sense. And so that's how it works because you need that sirtuin enzyme well, I don't say you need, but that sirtuin enzyme is responsible for the, you know, life extension. And that sirtuin enzyme is NAD dependent. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And so we know that, you know, from other researchers that when we have lower NAD levels, um, then that sirtuin enzymes are not as active. And so then the result is lifespan will not be as long. I have a question just on data in, in general, you know, for, for our listeners, like the everyday person that is trying to do the best they can in, um, in a search for like the, the, the various evidence to expand their longevity or their quality years, as you mentioned in the beginning, 
there's just so much out there, right? And there's so much that conflicts. And like, how do you, or how do you suggest even for the listeners to, to start sifting through some of that? Like, do you have any standards or any key questions you're asking yourself um, as you're reading and updating um, yourself on all of the information that's out there? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think it's super tough. I mean, I think one thing I tell people and one thing I keep in mind is most of the stuff is made up right? Like we, we don't, ha- we don't have long-term data really on any of this. Like we're, we're getting there, but we, we, we you know, and even with NAD, we, we, we haven't been giving people or we haven't been repleting NAD levels for that long. And so because of that, um, we have to keep in mind that um, if we just stick by data, um, we'll probably miss the bus. And so it, what I tell people is, you know, one, you have to be open to experimenting um, because I think that's how we figure things out. And and not just experimenting in terms of what the, you know, masses do, but individually experimenting. And so I think there's some useful tools for people. Um, you know, it seems that podcasts have become a way to disseminate information. Um, unfortunately, that can be good and bad. It's good because we can get information, you know, to people really quickly. The bad news is, is that probably most of it just comes from someone else experimenting, right? So if we look at a lot of these popular biohackers, um, Ben Greenfield, Dave Asprey, they're doing amazing work, but a lot of what they're doing is just experimenting on, on themselves. Um, and, but they're, you know, they're, it's very well researched and a lot of most of what they're recommending to people is going to be safe. And then I tell people we need to then um, take that information and then be open to trying it on ourselves and see what feels right. And so, for example, you know, nutrition seems to be a topic for people that a lot of people struggle with and people, and, and we know this cause there's, you know, 10 to 16 different diet books written every year. And so people are always confused about, should I be carnivore? Should I be vegan? Should I be gluten-free? Um, how do I eat? And my response is, the only way to know is to try it on yourself, yeah. right? And a lot of this comes down to kind of bringing back our internal radar about our intuition about what feels right and doesn't feel right. Um, and then, so being open to number one, experiment on ourselves, really in, in all aspects of life from how we move, right? Some people would say, well, what's the best fitness? Well, the data is pretty clear that it doesn't matter if you do high intensity exercise, yoga, play soccer, whatever, what matters is you do it consistently, right? So that's one tenet is you want to do, you know, in terms of fitness, you want to do it consistently. Another tenet would be, I think, <clears throat> not so much in data, but just how you kind of approach things <clears throat> is challenging yourself, right? Don't do the same thing every day. Um, then that applies to not only food, but how you move supplements, hormones, NAD, um, even your thought process. Because as humans, we're super adaptable. And as females, um, females are super, super adapters, so they adapt even faster than men. And so if you're eating the same food every day, it's probably not going to work for you over time. You're going to adapt to it. If you're running on the treadmill 30 minutes a day, at some point that doesn't work for you. If you're taking the same stuff every day, it some, at some point doesn't work as well for you. You know, you render everything in your life less potent the, the more you kind of repeat it. And, and the key there is repeating it without any sort of cognitive function goes back to just being present in one's life. And so a lot of kind of longevity and a lot of, you know, making success for one starts with how they perceive themselves in their world. Meaning, you know, if you decide that you're going to be empowered and be, you know, intend what you want to happen, that you want to be the best of the best of the best for whatever that is, then and you commit to that, then you can do that. And I would say that's more important. Making that decision is more important than reading journal articles and keeping up with all this information, because ultimately each of us is so unique as an individual, right? That um, your success rate is going to be much higher. And it's impossible to keep up with all this information, especially now in this digital age, like it's, it's super, super challenging to know what is legitimate. And so the, the only way I think is to, be willing to try. And then in terms of sources, um, it's, it's challenging for me. Like I, it's challenging for me even to know what's legitimate and what's not legitimate, you know, in terms of, okay, what's this nutrition, what's this fitness advice, what's this supplement advice. Um, 
it, it's 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 a challenge. I don't. There's not one place I go to. I I'm constantly reading and and seeing and and the the way I approach things is if, if something resonates with me. Kind of, again, there's that internal radar. I'll try it out. If I find I'm liking it, I'll tell some people about it. We'll kind of see how they do, and then we'll kind of spread that information to others. But again, it starts with that kind of internal radar about intuition, about being present and, and deciding to, to try stuff out. Right back to the basics. I, I love it. Well, thank you for that. Rhett, Philip? Yeah, and that's, kind of, that's kind of what we've had to do as well. And that's you know from the beginning of the show when we said we reached out to Dr. Conover is we reach out to those people that have a, a good background and have been trustworthy in the information that they've put out. And we seek to, to learn from them and then also do our research, like you said, find something that resonates with you and then and test it out. See if it works. See if there's some validity to it. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there's not. Well, in the ones that are actively working in the field, if you want to know about NAD, you have to go to the guy who's actually creating the protocols for NAD. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and to the point, like, I don't I don't think it's helpful to um, there's so many people working on so many things that we don't none of us need to try to recreate the wheel. Right. Because like I told you guys, when I, when you guys were here and we tell everyone who comes through our training, like what we, what we really seek and want for you is to take everything we've taught you and make it your own, right? Put your spin on it, put your flavor on it because you're going to discover things that we haven't, right? You're going to work with clients in ways that we haven't. And as long as we're all working towards that goal, we can collaborate and try to help each other understand what works, what doesn't work or what seemingly works or doesn't work. Um, and that's the only way we can make progress. And it's really so counterculture to conventional medicine because everybody kind of holds tightly to the information that they have and uh, nobody really wants to share or collaborate. And it's, it was refreshing to find that, that that was different with you and that it was different in this space that people do want to share and disseminate that information. Yeah, and I think, no, it's a good point. I mean, doctors in general now tend to be very territorial. Um, you know, someone, uh, I have a, a client and, and she was asking me, you know, um, Hey, who can, can I introduce you to some people? And, um, she's out in Los Angeles and she's very famous and said, Hey, you know, who do you want to work with? And she mentioned this doctor who's a, a very famous doctor. And, and I said, you know, um, I'd love to help them. However, most doctors can't collaborate, right? They're very territorial. They don't want to share. And so they just want to take what you, you know, they're very protective. And, and that's a shame because, you know, we're all in this together. There's so many patients for us to help. And if we can be open to collaborating, we can really reach, you know, so many more people. And there's so many people in need because conventional medicine just is so stymied by so many facets. I mean, it's not helping people reach their health and, and performance goals whatsoever. Especially in 2020, I think the need is, is, you know, double or tripled. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah. With the whole Corona pandemic and yeah. And I think people are going to be really challenged by, um, in many ways, we're going to see what, you know, transpires, but I think in many ways, there's a lot of fear, obviously, there's gonna be a lot of fear for people returning to doctor's offices. There's a lot of fear about what people should be doing with their immune system. And, um, I think you guys are going to help pave the way. Um, for making, you know, kind of taking down those barriers, showing people that um, there's no fear in coming and supporting yourself, doing these different treatments um, and supporting their immune system. Because I, I really do think that's one of the gifts we're going to get after Corona is that um, people have a better understanding that they need to invest in their own immune system. And to do so, um, conventional medicine can't help you, right? Conventional medicine is not there to help you invest in your immune system, whatsoever. Um, yeah. and so what you guys are doing is going to help, you know, educate people how to invest in your immune system to make yourself the strongest possible so that no matter what virus comes, cause there's going to be plenty of viruses, including COVID, um, it doesn't matter, right? Like you can make yourself as strong as possible and then you don't need to worry about what conventional medicine instills in you in terms of having to isolate and separate and do all these things that just don't resonate with us. Yeah, to expand on that, like one one of the other uh, things that you're really good at is uh, the understanding of cortisol and how it plays and wreaks havoc on your body and how 
if used properly, it's you know very healthy and something that our body needs for health. But can you touch on how you think that um, all of this stress that we constantly live in and that on t- piled on top of the corona and, and all these riots are really going to affect people's longevity and, and the negative impact that that's going to have? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think it's a, for the most part, a poorly understood topic, you know, I think um, in part because if we're talking about cortisol, which is our stress hormone, it's secreted by our adrenal glands, you know, conventional medicine says you, you can't have sort of what we call adrenal fatigue, they say you either have, um, you know, adrenal excess, um, or you have total adrenal failure, um, and there is no in between. So adrenal excesses would be something called Cushing's disease, and then adrenal failure, um, you know, is some is I'm blanking on the name now. But they there's no gray Addison's disease. There we go. Um, so there is no in between. But what we know about cortisol as a hormone, um, not to go too far down this technical detail, but, but cortisol is, is probably our most important hormone. It's, um, it's hardwired into us in terms of how we secrete it. There's a, there's a predefined rhythm in terms of, you know, like this, like I tell people, it's like the sun, it rises in the morning and sets in the evening and having that, um, rhythm and maintaining that rhythm over your lifespan is super, super important. And what, what seems to happen for people as they get into the third and fourth, even fifth decade of life is we've chipped away at that cortisol secretion kind of silently, chronically. And, and we do so because we, we have this, these stressors, these chronic stressors, which we don't, we don't even really consider them stressors, but they are. So things we think about emotionally, the examples I use, you know, being stuck in traffic, you have deadlines, you, we, you know, eating the wrong foods, beating ourselves up for eating the wrong foods. You know, everyone's familiar with that. Oh, I shouldn't have eaten that piece of cake. You know, I'm a bad person. Um, Telling ourselves these negative things. Well, over time that takes its toll. And so for most people at some point, they wear down their ability to secrete cortisol appropriately or adaptively. And as such, they then lose that adrenal reserve. Well, if you lose that adrenal reserve, you're not in a position to handle a real stress, a real stress, maybe a death of a loved one, loss of a job, something like the fear of Corona coming in. And now instead of being like a rubber band and, you know, you know, snapping back into a place, you're a rubber band that's really brittle and you snap completely. And this is what I consider the context for where people get cancer, heart disease, autoimmune disease, neurogenerative disease, kind of a mental quote unquote breakdown. It's in that context because we've tapped away over time at our ability to secrete cortisol. And that's a challenge. Conventional medicine doesn't address this at all. And so, and even most kind of alternative medicine doctors, functional medicine doctors don't understand this. And so we don't have a basis to explain to patients how to go about their day in a way that's going to honor um, that cortisol secretion. I love it. You, I mean, you've, I've been chomping at the bit to, to ask you some mental fitness questions and you, you definitely set this one up. Are, are there any, cause you mentioned, you know, stuck in traffic and, and all these different negative narratives that loop in our minds that chip away at, at those reserves. Like what are some things that people can do uh, either on a daily basis or in the moment to, to help control some of that, some of those emotions, right. Through any type of, I don't know, mindfulness or wellness practices. Yeah, no, I think it's just that. I think people need to, what I consider, be really deliberate of contemplative exercises. Contemplative would be just that meditation, prayer, journaling, something introspective or inward where you're tapping back into um, the parasympathetic nervous system. And and so what seems to happen for people, um, we live in a very sped up world, especially with the digital age we live in, social media, our phones, there's always something to look at. There's always someone who needs your attention. And it's very hard for people to be grounded and centered, like super challenging for, for most adults. And so, you know, because we don't come from a centered place, we get rattled pretty easily. I mean, this is mm-hmm. most people. Um, and, and because we're rattled, then we can't, again, keep up with cortisol demands appropriately or adaptively. And so then we have these maladapted responses. So, what's a really great buffer for people to do is to spend time every day deliberately. And by deliberately, it means you schedule it because if you leave it up to chance, it won't happen, but you schedule time for most people. It's going to be when they first wake up before they go to bed, 
where they spend time on themselves separate than their phone, right? Where they're in prayer, they're meditating, they're journaling, they're doing something where they are examining themselves. They're just with their thoughts, their emotions, they're at peace with themselves. And if people do that over time, then what they do is they're able to build back this adrenal reserve because that's how you tap back into it. Um, because the sympathetic nervous system, the one with their foot on the gas, that's what we're doing all the time. And, and we're doing it most of the time without even thinking now, right? Because sure. we are so sped up. We have so much things being you know, given to us or, or thrown at us that we feel compelled to always keep up. Um, and if you think back to primitive times, even before the time of electricity, you know, people had to live very much with the rhythms of the sun how uh, you know food was grown, how you would eat, how you would move was dictated by this very primitive way of life, and that's just a good context for people to get back into. And and a, you know I think a lot of people get it wrong where they say, oh, don't use your cell phone. Well, to me that that doesn't make sense. Like it's just become a staple for people, and I, I don't think it's good to to scare people or to instill fear into people or to make people feel they're doing something wrong. It's 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 better to go about you know using what we use. Um, the tools we use, but then building in or building up a very strong reserve so that we can be, you know, really resilient and grounded. And and for most people, they'll never get there. I mean, most people, it's so much easier just to take four pills, right? Yeah. And and then think that that is how they are healthy. I mean, that that will be the masses for sure. Well, one really nice thing that I think is coming out of this pandemic is it's like a forced slowdown for most people. I just hope as things start to to open back up and uh, whatever the new normal is, that, that people can hang on to some of that slowness, right? Or or connecting back to themselves and actually being present, you know, with their families and friends and and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, again, I, I think that could be one of the gifts coming out of Corona is people having to slow down, right? And, and understanding that um, in the slowdown that there's a lot of things that they missed out on when they were so sped up. I mean, I hope so. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. So Dr. K, outside of the mindfulness practice, I know even when we were there getting our therapies and we we're trying out NAD, you always have uh, your, your patients set the intention before any procedure or any therapy that you're going to give them, which I found pretty fascinating. I was like, wow, that's the first time I've ever even heard of a doctor just priming your mind for your body to receive the treatment, which was really cool. But yeah. um, outside of those things, I know you've uh, kind of dove deep into ketamine. And can you touch on how you're using ketamine to manage people's stress or just have them manage a uh, mental or um, it just issues that they may have that they may benefit from that particular therapy. Yeah. Ketamine's become this really uh, magical molecule really aligned with NAD in, in that regard, um, you know, to give some context. So, so ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist in, in the nervous system, um, which means it controls in this regard, the influx of the neurotransmitter glutamate into the, um, synapse across different neurons. So glutamate is a critical neurotransmitter that is needed for memory consolidation. Um, and, you know, to give people context, a lot of who we are, the fabric of who we are, our personality is formed before we're five years old. And because of that, that a, a lot of the architecture of our nervous system um, involves glutamate. Um, and people are somewhat familiar with this um, glutamate in, in excess. Um, if we get too much glutamate, which would be the easy example, you know, a lot of Chinese food, for example, that people eat has MSG, a lot of fast food too. Well, MSG causes an influx of glutamate into our nervous system. And people, when they feel that way, they feel really off, right? They feel like they can't concentrate, they focus, they just feel blah. A lot of that has to do with glutamate. And if you get way more glutamate than that, it's actually toxic to your neurons. So too much glutamate or the speed of which glutamate is, is crossed in your uh, synapses is too much for people. And what ketamine does, which is interesting, is it is because it's an MDA, NMDA receptor antagonist, it slows down glutamate across really throughout the nervous system. And when you slow down glutamate, you're able to think more clearly clearly get a lot of clarity and insight 
into things that you normally don't, right? If your nervous system is are always firing at 90% and now you slow it down and making up numbers here to 40%, you're able to make connections and see things that you normally aren't. And so <clears throat> a lot of people struggle um, as an adult because, you know, for example, it doesn't have to be over abuse or neglect as a child, but, you know, I, I think that most of us have some, you know, even if it's micro trauma as we grow up, you know, milestones weren't met, things that happened in our childhood, even if we had very safe childhoods um, that cause us to see the world somewhat as an unsafe place, you know, and I think that's true for most adults. And, and what ketamine does, not to make this too complicated, but ketamine slows down the process uh, of our experience so that we're able to make connections and literally reconfigure the architecture of our nervous system to produce more meaningful or positive experiences to replace the trauma. That is huge, right? And so um, what's used now from by most people is they'll use intravenous ketamine. Um, we don't like intravenous ketamine. It just takes on a different entity. What we use is we use intramuscular ketamine um, in combination with NAD, this intravenous NAD. And then if people do well with that, and, and most of the people, again, are going to have some anxiety, depression, who are, who are falling into this category, um, we can get them a nasal spray we make, which has ketamine and oxytocin, um, and then sometimes even a rapid dissolve tab of ketamine that people can do at home under a guided meditation, like we were talking about earlier, um, with prayer, with music, that again, slows down their nervous system and helps to reconfigure that nervous system to help heal past trauma and provide a meaningful and positive context going forward. So in that regard, it's a, it's, it's really a unique tool and a valuable tool um, that again, there's so many people with PTSD um, who would, who would really, you know, be great candidates for this. Yeah, I think it's, I actually think it's really important for us to have these conversations because this again is where conventional medicine falls short. And to touch on what we talked about before that, even mindfulness you know, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your your series on immunity started with mindfulness, and I think yep. conventional medicine falls short in that area as well. You don't when you go to see a doctor in conventional medicine, that's the last thing they talk about, and then you tra transcend that to ketamine and getting this out in the open where there may be a stigma. You know, Philip and I are uh, trained in anesthesia, so it's also an anesthetic to us, but there are widely um, beneficial clinical benefits that that people can use ketamine for when used in the right context yeah i mean and and that's a good way of thinking about it, it is it's a disassociative anesthetic and so what it does in in large doses is it turns off your consciousness right and that's why it works for anesthesia and so it allows you to be um physiologically alive but but consciously you're not there so you can have surgery or something like that and so what we're doing with ketamine now is we're, we're reducing that dosage to a much smaller degree where people can then, they don't lose their consciousness, but you reevaluate because you're able to tap into um, a different way of seeing your consciousness or experiencing that consciousness. And so that's, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a the mindfulness is huge. I mean, setting a, a positive mindset. And I tell people, and you guys probably experience the same thing, like, you know, there's all these great tools out there from NAD to stem cells, to peptides, to all these things. But what's most important is whether someone believes that therapy will work for them. And I can't convince anyone of anything, right? And so I've had lots of conversations with people that I can see the benefits of doing these different therapies, but if they don't believe it to be true, then it's not worth doing. It's just not the right time, right? Because they're not ready for it. And if they're not ready for it, they, they really won't get anything out of it. They can't succeed if you don't believe it to work, right? You don't have to know all the details, but if you don't believe in it, you're not going to get as much out of it. And if you're not going to get as much out of it, why, why even go down that road? Why not wait until you're ready to get as much out of it as possible? And then the results can be like tremendous. You had a, you had a great uh, podcast with Aubrey Marcus on talking about nocebo, placebo, all these different effects. So if our listeners want to check that out, that to kind of dive deeper into that. That was a really good podcast. That's actually exactly okay. what I was thinking about that, that comment. But it also made me think of and it's something I wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. Conover, but just people that come in with this long family history of disease and, and, you know, shifting their psyche that, 
like you can you can break the cycle like it's possible just because you're you know your dad died of a heart attack doesn't guarantee you're gonna die the same way right for sure well and i think so it, it brings up the conversation about you know uh, nature versus nurture or, or what is our dna versus our experience i mean the way i think about it is our dna um, is the blueprint and and it does matter right like your family history does matter it matters not only because you have the certain set of blueprints to do certain things but i think it's more by the patterning that happens in development right and so i don't think that's talked about as much but you know parents tend to raise children in the same pattern that they were raised in and so if you combine that same patterning whether it's good or bad there's no judgment with that dna you're you're going to tend to get the same outcome but what we know is 100% true is that if you recondition or or change the pattern by which you expose yourself to your experience through our five senses, then you can lead any life you want. You can have any existence you want. Now, most people won't believe that. And the example I use with people is, you know, what is a miracle, right? Like a miracle is essentially people having, you know, healing that happens instantaneous, right? Now that process of having instantaneous healing is the same process of whether that, that healing occurs over three months or three years. It just happens really quickly. The difference is, is that um, it, we call it a light switch therapy. It's like you flip the switch on and now you've gone from a place of a certain energetic vibration. Let's use the example of cancer to a different energetic vibration to where that cancer can no longer grow. Now, most people will never, ever believe that that's possible. So if you don't believe it, you'll never get there. But we know it's possible. Like we know that miracles exist. I've seen it with patients. I had a patient, this was probably 10 years ago. He told me he was um, eating some steak one night. The steak got lodged in his throat and he had to go to the emergency room. For He had to be scoped to get the steak out. And when they scoped him, they said, oh my goodness, there's cancer in your esophagus. You need to come back and we're going to have to scope you again and stage you. I don't remember the time frame. It might have been a week or two weeks. And he went back, and they're like, what just happened? There's no more cancer. Well, that's a miracle, yeah. right? That's instantaneous healing. Now, how did he do that? He's probably not fully aware of how he did it, but he was able to tap into some sort of belief that he he turned it you know, all on or off, however you want to look at it. But that's very possible. Conventional medicine, one of the failures is we study disease. We don't study miracles. We don't study healing. We're not excited about it, right? Um, but, you know, that starts with the mindset that anything is possible. And I fully believe that. I fully believe we all have the tools within us right now to heal whatever it is that we want. And if we can just, you know, find that, believe in it and practice it, um, again, anything is possible. Yeah, and I was going to add, uh, l- let me showcase Mark here a bit. And of course, Dr. Conover, we learned this from you, but one of the treatment matrix that we are trying to employ at Thrive is that everything we do comes with the mental component. So not only is Mark our podcast host, but he is the uh, mental fitness practitioner. So we're going to try to push our patients to meet with him and work with him on a regular basis. And as we all discussed, I think that will enhance the um, success we have with our patients. Yeah. I mean, I think anything that we can do to reinforce the patients, that to empower patients, to make positive choices, right? Instilling in them to come from a place of abundance and not fear is always going to be successful. Um, the, the challenge is for most people, they've grown up with the, the fear being thrown at them and ingrained so deeply that, um, you know, if you take, for example, the diagnosis of cancer, you know, most oncologists will scare people that if they don't take the chemotherapy and do all these things, that there's zero chance they can survive. And that's just not true. And that doesn't mean that chemotherapy isn't good and everyone needs to make that choice on their own. But I, you know, people need to make that choice, in my opinion, coming from a place of abundance and not being scared. Like, oh, if I don't do this, then then all will go poorly. Yeah. It makes me think even, uh, I'm not sure, I, I'm speaking to you guys in, in Canada, but I know over here when someone's diagnosed with a particular cancer, there's there's always the typical, you know, you have X amount of time to live, which I believe in, in Europe, they actually they, they can't do that. <clears throat> and the the like the outcomes are, are through the roof in terms of how long people are continuing to live, which makes sense, right? 
Well, what I tell people is, is that there's only been one thing that's been shown to be helpful in every single type of cancer, and that one thing is positive thinking. And so um, it's a time for people. I mean, cancer is really tough. It's it's very challenging for people, but it's a time for people to reevaluate where they are. It's really a course correction, and it's a way for them to rid themselves of any toxic anything in their life. And most of it comes down to toxic relationships that people are afraid of kind of getting through. But that negativity is there's no room for it, right? Like it's got to be positive. And, and so the way people can frame that is not that they're unreal or unrealistic about how they feel or even their fears, but it's, it's, you know, just having the framework to say, I'm scared. I'm not in a place I want to be, but I'm curious and or excited about where I'm going. And it's just focusing on that. It's kind of what I call the GPS way of thinking. You ask two questions, a GPS unit. Where are you right now? Where are you? Where do you want to go? It doesn't say, where were you last Thursday? Why were you late? Why did you eat that? <laughs> it just has two questions. Where are you right now? Where do you want to go? And that's just a really good tool for people to use when faced with these, you know, big, you know, unnerving diagnoses. Great prompts. Well, we, we want to respect your time and, and start wrapping up. And one of the, the final questions that we're going to ask everyone in this series is related to what you're doing personally to achieve your peak health. Are there any non-negotiables um, in your routine? That's a good question. I, I don't know about non-negotiables. Um, one thing that um, we've started employing in the last, I don't know, six months, which I think is should probably be a non-negotiable for people as, as the cost come downs, but it is infrared sauna. Mm. Um, the infrared sauna we do pretty much every day, my wife and I, and um, not only do we feel coming out of that amazing, but the health benefits I think are just incredible in terms of, you know, sweating, right. And just the process of sweating and detoxifying, um, you know, again, being present. I think there's something that said for us doing it together you know having that connection we can spend time together and then just the infrared you know the anti-inflammatory components of using light and light therapy um, are tremendous so i think that will become a non-negotiable actually as we're talking about it um other things i do you know i i'm a big fan of um for really all people evaluating hormones i've been on testosterone for i don't know 10 12 years i find that to be you know, that's a non-negotiable as we talk it out. Um, I try a variety of supplements, um, variety of peptides. I, I do NAD every month. I do a fast vitamin every week. Um, but that's about it for me. I think, you know, the biggest thing is like all busy people, busy professionals is just making sure that I, you know, engage the parasympathetic that I find work-life balance, um, that, that, I think is critical and probably undervalued by us, but I think that that plays a huge role. And so making sure that I'm not working all the time, um, doing fun things, playing golf, reading, um, having that balance is super important. Yeah, that's a great way to end. Um, and Dr. Conover, we, we're going to ask you again, if you can come back, cause there's so many topics that we can sure. touch on a lot of things. Yeah, we're putting we you on the spot right now. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'd be happy to come back anytime. I love talking about this, obviously. I, I really do. I say that in all sincerity. Um, I, this is a passion of mine and being able to um, connect with you guys and, and being able to you know have these types of conversations, I think, is helpful to all of us. And uh, I'm, again, very appreciative that you invited me and I'm available at, at your leisure to do it again, for sure. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, so let, let's talk about this this last interview with good old Dr. Conover. From my side, um, the thing that I, I feel like was almost a theme of the whole show was this notion of, yes, we have to educate, but we equally, if not more, have to help people unlearn things. Absolutely. And he's, he's never anything less than mind-blowing. I always love talking to that guy. Um, and, you know, like you're saying, I, I, the takeaway for me, uh, I don't know if you guys heard him say, but he was talking about cancer and then he related to toxic relationships. So I think yeah, it's really fun to talk to him because he's not afraid to say what some people are thinking or at least be open-minded to, you know, what what we need to be thinking. Yeah, he's he can 
broach any topic and he does it in such a way that's not abrasive at all and just keeps you calm and at ease when he's speaking about those topics. So I think that's a a talent and a gift that he has. One thing that really resonated with me is uh, that he kind of tied into with our previous guest with MC as she was talking about these scripts that we have and he kind of led into it with the science that, you know, we're kind of programmed like by five and then throughout life, we have all these things that happen to us and we program ourselves to run these scripts. So I thought it was really cool that she's a practicing psychiatrist, mental fitness expert, and Dr. Conover is a practicing um, physician in performance and longevity medicine, yet he still subscribes to some of the um, teachings or philosophies that uh, the MC expounded upon. Well, and that too, like there was the, he mentioned the whole play aspect, right? Which was obviously a, a huge one for, for MC. I mean, there's, there's a lot of overlap, I think, in, in those conversations from different perspectives. Yeah. And I think part of this series is to push the listeners and to push us to look at patterns. And you have two very different practitioners that both touch upon the same pattern. So I'm hoping at the end of these series, we can actually come up with some definitives for ourselves and some takeaways as we go into the future. Obviously the one right now is mindfulness, right? Mindfulness mindset um, and checking in. I mean, he taught, I mean, it blew me away when he was talking about how people are practicing distraction. I mean, it's very easy to practice distraction and we're conditioned to practice distraction. So, I mean, one of the things he kept saying is we spend very little time checking in with ourself being present and i'm sure you can touch on yeah. that oh totally well it's just i think because we're just a surrounded by it non-stop right like it's like you can't if if you come out in into the world and society and out of your house like you, you have to a- actively work against the the distraction right and i think what what i really liked about again kind of like a through line theme of what he was talking about like he really kept things basic as much as Totally. Um, right. As much as talking about, you know, NAD and all the science behind it and everything, but like at the core of it, it's like, you need to be mentally prepared to to take this and that like, this is going to change you. Right. And just back to following the gut and, you know, right back to when he was talking about um, like how to sift through all the data, like what's like, just be practical about it and, and, and open, open is the other thing and, and try things, but keep it simple. Right. Which then makes it easier, I think, in, in in this case of like if you're stuck in traffic and getting pissed off or um, you know irritable and stuff like that, like just take a breath, right? Like back to the basics. So, Mark, question for you: What uh, nuggets did you take away from uh, this particular guest and Dr. K's perspective on mental fitness and mindfulness? Uh, I mean, I'm as you guys know, I'm obsessed with prompts and and good questions and i think you know he dropped two at the end there in relation to cancer but it's obviously you know can be applied for everything and that's you know where are you right now and and where do you want to be and man are those ever those are powerful right you can apply that to, to anything in life and i think his point obviously is like when you set that direction then that's step one in the whole process then then let the rest come to you and and, and take the actions, obviously, to get to where you want to be, but you have to set that course first. Yeah, and when, you know, one thing I want to make sure in these post shows that we touch on is are things that I want the listeners to remember. And I think he does a very good job in a society of, of making clear in a society where we're very results driven. And I think we can relate that here to Thrive, where we want people to get healthier. We want them to have a better quality of life, but to remember to be kind to yourself and be easy on yourself sometimes so that you're not overdoing it. You know, as he discussed where you just eat the eat food that you shouldn't have ate and then you're really hard on yourself. And I think it just adds to the stress and um, the issues that are going on right now, you know? Totally. Yeah. I think MC touched on that as well when she was speaking about, um, you know, we, sometimes we are way too hard on ourselves. just in, she was talking about even for physicians, just the sense of always wanting to be perfect. So that's our script as physicians. And we just try to be perfect, try to be perfect. And in reality, you're never going to be perfect. So just, um, 
like I said, be kind to yourself. And I look forward to, you know, what other guests are going to impart into this series. But I think so far we've gotten a lot of good takeaways. And, you know, one of the main things at Thrive that we're really focusing on and Rhett highlighted it in the podcast is mental fitness and mindfulness. And everything starts from the mind and strengthening the mind um, and having a healthy a mental fitness practice is going to allow you to be able to complete your tasks, achieve your goals, and really give you a way to live with intention. Couldn't say it any better myself. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Well, let's um, let's wrap up this this post chat and on to the next one. Yeah, we look forward to the next guest and look forward to providing our listeners some usable information so that they have actionable steps that they can take in their daily lives. All right, you made it to the end. Thank you so much for listening. And please make sure to tune into the next show, which will be with Kara Collier, who is a registered dietitian with a background in clinical nutrition and nutrition technology. If you are enjoying these shows, please drop us a review wherever you're listening. They go a long way. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time.